The first reading comes from Matthew 19. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. The second reading is from Romans 8, and we'll go down to verse 18. But before that, this is one of my favourite verses in the whole of the Bible, and it's verse 1, so I'm going to read it even though it's not set down. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, from verse 18, it's pretty dense, this stuff, and I found it pretty hard to get the meaning of, so stick with it. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, for the creation wakes in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For, this, for the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Yet there was hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But we hope for what we do not yet have, and we wait patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that Jesus might be the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. 
Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Even though it is written in the Psalms, for your sake we face, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. Now the last reading, it comes from Colossians 4. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open the door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Don't we have some amazing people in our congregation? Thank you. So uh, why are we here? We're here for lots of reasons. Uh, one of them is to sing and let that um, shape our lives together. One of them is to pray and there'll be opportunities after the service to pray with somebody up the back. One of them is to eat together. I'm going to eat bread and wine, uh, be nourished by faith by in Christ, but also to eat together um, afterwards in the hall. Uh, another one is to hear the Bible read and then explored in such a way that it begins to shape our lives. You do that regularly, and I tell you, your heart gets orientated towards true north, you know, where it's supposed to be orientated over time. And, um, and I'm hoping that's, that happens for us today, you know, where your life is enriched, but more than that, it points to the God who you meant to spend your life glorifying and come to church is part of the reason for doing that. So I take it we should do this with some level of humility, yes, <laughs> and pray to God and ask him to you know, make his word known to us and then alive uh, with traction in our lives. Isn't that like a good prayer? Yeah? Getting some nods. Yeah, that works. Let me pray. Tell her. Father, we really do want to live and work to your praise and glory. So teach us how to live. Teach us how to love in new ways. Teach us how to, to work. Fill our hearts with all joy and peace in believing and make us more like Jesus Christ each day, Father. Um, moments like this, uh, just they're, they're in our calendars. They happen once a week and um, they're good, uh, but they form us deeply over time. So form our hearts to true north, to Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen, as they say. I want you to lean in. 
and listen closely because I've got some good news. I'm going to read to you from my text for this evening's teaching. And these words are profound. It's five verses from Romans 8. Read, read a moment ago. Romans 8 from verse 18. Listen. I consider, writes the Apostle Paul, that our present sufferings, is that you? You've got present sufferings? I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, it didn't choose this, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. I couldn't think of a more fitting interview or reader. Are you hear this, by the way? Are you here? Are you leaning forward and listening? The creation waits. It begs the question, what is it waiting for? How does it wait? Verse 20, the creation was subject to frustration. Who did that? It's in Genesis chapter 3. The creation itself will be liberated, freed from its bondage to decay. It's not just scientific. What's the word? Um, entropy, you see. Laws of entropy. And verse 22, the most profound of all, really. We know that the whole creation has been groaning like a woman in childbirth, as in the pains of childbirth, right up until the present time. We say in the creed, I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And that's what these verses are about. Some might say, this is hard to believe, but you could also say, is there another hope? Really? Now, there's a lot going on in these verses and in the whole chapter, as Graham said a moment ago. But right here, there's a link between giving birth and the future of our earth, and therefore our lives, our loves, and our work. And it begs the question here, in verse 22, what's Paul referring to? Who is giving birth, or, or like birth, to what? There's groaning here, creation subjected to futility. We talked about that last week, connecting the dots, I hope, between sin and realism at work. And there is here... A birth to come, something in the future, not a newborn baby, but here, a liberated world. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. I have four children, was present at the birth of my four children. Here are some things that are present at birth. Um, waiting is there for the child to be revealed. Now imagine, you know, you've got ultrasounds now, but... Well, four, nine, and seventies. You know, what is the what will she, he be like? You know, the gender you don't even know. <laughs> Frustration is there at childbirth in the process, mostly groaning, <laughs> no getting around it. Um, My wife was told to keep quiet in New York. 
She will not be quiet. She will not be quiet. Expectation, anticipation, hope. And then the child, if I can put it this way, liberated into a new reality, if you run with the metaphors, the images being presented here. Now, Paul writes these words based on promises of God in the Old Testament. And they are wrought, I love that word, it's a verb you should use more often, achieved by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the claim of the New Testament that you have to wrestle with. This is the present reality of our world, groaning. I mean, the song we sang said, you know, storms, high and stormy gale, but, you know, same idea. But this world is a prelude to a world to come, life everlasting. And we don't have it yet, verse 24. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? I've already got it. But if we hope for what we do not have, and none of us have it, we wait for it patiently. Now, what I'm going to do is connect the dots between redemption and witness, and it's not just with your words, we'll find out at the end of this message. Made to Work has been our series to open this year. It's a theology of work, um, brief, inadequate in many ways, but I'm okay about that because the series is an introduction to the whole year. If I can put it this way, this is the end of the series, which is the beginning of everything good for the year. So it's got a real eschatological feel about it. We are connecting the dots in 2019 between what we learn on Sunday and what we do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. So the theme of Sundays in 2019 is Monday, which is why we're doing the interviews. So this series is an inadequate introduction to the year, and uh, you know the questions are coming in, and I'm feeling the weight of them. We're talking with you, and we're going to put them down and say, how can these things be addressed throughout all of the year? I mean. Graham just mentioned one of them a moment ago. How do you speak to a colleague? And I'm just going to touch on that today, but, um, but we'll explore it more during the year. More to come. Why the series? Because we want alignment between uh, the gospel and our work. We don't want to travel between two worlds. We want alignment between good theology and what we do midweek. Whatever it is, and it's different things for each of us. In Ecclesiastes, I love the line, whatever your hand finds to do... Employed, employer, volunteer, retired, but you're not lazy, you see. Whatever your hand finds you to do, do it with all your might, or enthusiastically, Paul says in Colossians. Dorothy says, urged a thoroughgoing revolution in our whole attitude to work, and I love that idea, by the way, because I'm like, doing it, doing it, doing it, I need a revolution. What does a Christian revolution, a thoroughgoing revolution, look like with respect, fourthly, to redemption? That's tonight. What have we said so far? We've started to connect the dots between worship and work. If you worship God and not work, you're more likely, I argued, to be more enthusiastic because you've got the main thing sorted, a Godward orientation, direction. So we're not loading up work with expectations. It can't and it was never designed to bear. Not making an idol of it so that you can have a levity about your life can lose things without being devastated. We started then to connect the dots between creation and work, because God works, we work. It's not an afterthought, it's not the menial work of a, of a, a slave. Uh, we are indeed made to work, there's dignity in it. 
uh, creating order out of chaos. And last week we started to connect the dots between sin and work. Let's be realistic. It will be hard. It'll be frustrating. Some of you have jobs that, are, that you consider to be quite mundane and you groan. Some of you have jobs that aren't mundane, but parts of it are really hard. We live in a world subjected to frustration. Um, Genesis 3. Last week was a pill to swallow. This week I hope the cure. And then we'll explore it all in 2019. Is that like a plan? Three points then to make from Romans chapter 8. Point number one, on page eight, Christ in you. Secondly, the hope of glory. Thirdly, therefore, some implications. So firstly, Christ in you. Verses 1 to 17, I'm just going to touch on this for a moment. The context of the redemption of the world from verses 18 is, is first your redemption. Verses 1 to 17. And it comes not by obeying law or Torah, but rather by the life, the death of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Jesus is the last who shall be first. The cross proves it. So God sent Jesus to where the problem is, not Jerusalem, but to me, to my heart, to me in the flesh. And there in the flesh, he made a sacrifice for me, something I couldn't do and the law couldn't do, so that, chapter 8, verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. None. Zero. Zilch. Not even disappointment. And now, therefore, I'm free to live this life, not bound by the flesh, to do whatever I want to do. That's a slavery of sorts. But liberated by the Spirit of God, I do what God wants me to do. Chapter 8, verse 12, Therefore, sisters and brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, meaning you just do what you want, you will die, because you will come up against God who wants you to live life differently. But if by the Spirit, you, um, the, the language is powerful, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now this is good news, even if it's hard news. A clean life, a life with God, aligned, struggling against sin, for sure. The old, old theologians used to call this the mortification of the flesh. They knew how to draw a crowd. Of course, something alive will always want to stay alive. Sin especially. So putting to death the mysteries of the body is a struggle, always a struggle. But there you are, you want it, you're willing, and more importantly, you're able, willing and abled. You like that? By God's animation in your life. Verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves. Oh no. So that you live in fear again. Now you're out of Egypt. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. So we will suffer, we will groan, we will struggle, but we will also live in joy and hope and peace as we pray. And as we wait, you might want to pray tonight. 
Verse 16, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Amazingly, if indeed we share in his sufferings, no getting around that, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is Christ in you as you live your life and as you go to work, you see. And work is supposed to be hard. We learned that last week. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, SIC, right, written in a different world. All masculine, pardon me. Work plunges, I'll change the first line, work plunges women into the world of things. The work of the world can be done only when a person forgets himself, where he loses himself in a cause, in reality, the task, the it, the thing you have to do. In work, the Christian learns to allow himself to be limited by task, or to go and do something. And thus, for him, the work becomes a remedy against indolence and sloth of the flesh. This is the it, the task that Bonhoeffer talks about, the hard thing you need to do, which is a remedy against laziness. But the point here is that God is doing a thing in your life, Christ in you, to make you more like Jesus, Paul goes on to say. He is in you. The power that raised Christ from the dead is in you. You have power then to live and to love and to work to his praise and glory. In Colossians 1, Paul writes that the glorious mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So there you are, a child of God, but you're waiting in a frustrated world. Use this language in a womb. Not a safe one, though. A frustrated one. The metaphors break down. Because secondly, there's a hope of glory to come. It's Christ in you, who is the deposit guaranteeing a hope of glory. So the liberated world, this is point number two. The liberated world to come is just that, a world liberated. Jesus is my current hope for this world to come, raised from the dead as the first fruits of those who believe, reigning until he has placed all things under his feet, you see. Um, That's from Genesis chapter 2. Lost in three for humanity, but given to one, the one who is last on the cross, but first in his resurrection. Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, but in Christ, this liberated world comes to me with hope. The Old Testament promised that God would shake the earth. Isaiah prophesied a new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah 65, verse 17. I think I was like in my 40s when I fully processed that. Jesus called this hope in the Greek, he called it the, the palingenesia. In that first reading, Matthew 19, verse 21, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, at the palingenesia, at the, at the renewal of all things, at the regeneration of all things. You see that language of new life? Jesus called it the kingdom of God, which is like a mustard seed at first, but it, you know, it grows as lives are lived, uh, waiting for an end, a a harvest. Theologians called this the eschaton, um, which is a Greek word for the end, or the the fulfillment, the end, which is really the beginning, a bit like this sermon series, the end of the series, beginning of the year. 
The eschaton is, is a way of speaking about the end of this fallen world and the beginning of a restored one. Paul wrote, for the creation, it itself waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The creation's groaning, frustrated, subject to decay. Across on page eight, these seven disconnects. Not six of them, not five, but all seven. I'm sorry if you're an extreme conservative or an extreme liberal. You don't get a choice in the kingdom of God cares about it all. We learned that last week. Get, get the, I was about to say the tape. It's online. Paul, Colossians 1 verses 19, important for the series, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace, shalom, through his blood shed on the cross. This is the beginning of it all. One of my favourite cartoons is two twins in a womb speaking to each other. It's just a cartoon. Run with me. One says to the other, don't be stupid. Who ever heard of life after birth? Can't know what you haven't experienced. John writes about the life to come, namely the God will live in this new world. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, quoting Isaiah. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Everyone. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Why? Because these are the old order and the old order of things has passed away. And the one who is seated on the throne said, I love this line, I am making everything new. Starting now, there's a decisive moment to come. But we live then now by faith, not by sight, knowing two things equally and ferociously. Firstly, that there is a radical discontinuity between now and the world to come. It's not the same as now. In other words, no more sin or mourning or crying or pain. These are of the old order. Decay, frustration, loss. And a radical continuity between this life and the world to come. It's not a, the world we live in will, we live, will not be another world other than this world. You know, when we sort of worlds unknown. No, 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 no. It's this world renewed, restored in a decisive moment. Jesus called it the, at the renewal of all things. In other words, it's exactly like Jesus' resurrected body. The same and recognizable, but different and glorious. That's why he's the first fruits of us, ahead of all things under his feet and in Christ our feet, which is the plan along. So there he is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So why is it important? Therefore, what are the implications? Well, right here in, in, um, in Romans, verse 31 on page 7, what shall we say in response to all these things? You know, what's the what do we conclude? And uh, Paul writes here and says, well, God uses all things for our good, even hard work, to make us more like Jesus. All things means all things. Deep suffering, on one hand. Um, by the way, my pastoral conversations go from joy and triumph to tragedy and pain. Once every five years, I get really deep tragedy. 
And once every 20 years, I get deep, 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 deep tragedy. And I'm meeting up with somebody this week whose life, if true, not, not, member, not here at church yet, but trying to reconnect with God. All things. And uh, when, if you want to ask me about this man's life, I, can, I won't be able to tell you everything, but like, we'll be able to test the theory that God uses all things. You know, from that to you're on the train, it's a quiet carriage, and someone next to you is talking on the phone. All things to make you more like Jesus Christ. You were just annoyed. In all the suffering, Paul writes, we are more than conquerors, for we are convinced that nothing can separate us from the thing you really want and need, the love of Christ. This is the power of Christ in you. This is the power of hope in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what are the implications for work, since it involves all things? Well, this is where everybody starts to argue, and all the theologians argue, and the half-theologians line up, and everybody else just goes to work. I might dedicate a sermon later to the continuity and discontinuity, but I take it if all this be true, then you need to live in the moment, that's clear in books of Revelation, but not for the moment. Living in the moment is a mantra of a secular age that's lost touch with this hope and is often curved in on self, but living in the moment can often morph into living for the moment. Get the buzz, get the experience, have to have the job, the house, the overseas vacation now, the life you want now. So you're living for the moment while saying you're in the moment. Ashley Madison is, I'm told, of course, a dating app, but it's for married people. Not to find love after marriage, but find it during marriage. So it's a site dedicated to adultery. Their tagline, I learned this a couple of years ago through that data breach. Um, their tagline is, life is short, have an affair. I tweeted back, I reject the premise. <laughs> and therefore the conclusion, life is eternal. Theologians argue what this world will look like in relation to continuity or work. Some say the world you live in now will always have its fulfillment later. Your work has some sort of fulfillment later. You can't know it now, but somehow your work will make it there. For example, an artist will see what their artwork fulfilled looks like. A farmer farms, but only knows feast and not famine. Cabinet maker making glorious cabinets in the eschaton. I'm sympathetic to this view because of the continuity argument in Scripture, and Tim Keller, I think, makes that argument in the book Every Good Endeavour, which I think you need to read, and uh, perhaps it's on the back table. Sometimes, though, I believe the connections are overmade, uh, but I also think the connections are undermade. Um, it's not as though God just wants your soul only, and then, you know, you just disconnect between that and your life such that the only thing that matters is going to heaven when you die and you go there without a body, souls floating on clouds, you don't want to go to hell, so 
um, you know, you just want to go to heaven when you die. Even my son, by the way, even at age eight, picked up the inadequacy of such a view. He's like, what's the point then of living? We talked about that. Truth is, God created the lot, one to seven, page eight. He loves the lot. He wants the lot and will redeem the lot. He wants you spiritually renewed. He wants you psychologically redeemed. And any mental health issues we face, and we do face them, will be healed at his touch, maybe in this life, but certainly in the life of the world to come. Relationally redeemed, socially redeemed, environmentally redeemed. The whole thing waiting for the children of God. We pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and will be in the life of the world to come. That means that the things you do in life matter without drawing the line too straight but not having no line at all. Take insurance. Um, it's easily mocked, pardon me, if you're in the insurance industry. But you know, you say, well, insurance making in the new heavens and new earth. And you go, you laugh. Of course not. I take it that insurance policies will not make it into the eschaton. But what about this? The instinct that might have been there at the origins of insurance to care for others in crisis, where the whole contributes to the part when the part is in crisis. I believe when insurance companies were started, they were called mutual societies and often started by evangelical Christians. How far are we away from what might be within insurance agencies where it's all about the money and the, the, um, the policy, the premiums? I take it the love makes it. Love remains without the money grabbing and the litigious thinking. We'll take a bridge, you're an engineer, you build a beautiful bridge. Maybe the bridge itself won't make it, but the idea, the design, the sense of accomplishment remain. The thing that drove it, perhaps, human flourishing. Your life matters, your work matters to God. This world matters to God. And I take it, if this is true, you live in the moment, but not for the moment. You live for Jesus Christ, whom you worship, and for the hope that you have in him, you lean forward into your true work and, and home. So this is the hope we have to which you are called to witness, to testify to. And we'll talk more about this in 2018. I think we'll have a talk where we just outline ways in which you can speak. But I take it it has at least three uh, things we witness to. A life in God, a legacy left for him, and I needed three L's, so I suggested life, legacy, and your loquaciousness. Someone texted me afterwards, how about language or lingo? Okay, fair enough. Your life, legacy, and your language. Your life first. You want to live a life worthy of the gospel and have it seen. Look for ways then to shape culture according uh, of your workplace, according to kingdom values. John Piper was standing on the platform about to go to Engage conference, which I was chairing a number of years ago, and he didn't want to know the questions I was going to ask him before I asked him, but I said, look, fair question. I'm going to ask you ways in which you can glorify God in your work, and he sat there mumbling at the base of the stairs to himself for two minutes, 
And then he walked up and turned his mumbling into nine beautiful and eloquent ways to glorify God in your work. And on page one or two, there are a couple of them there uh, on page two. For example, um, corporate setting, as you have influence and opportunities shape the ethics of the workplace so that the structures and policies and expectations and aims move towards accordance with Christ. And look to love, number seven there, you know, serve others. Be the one who volunteers first to drive the van, get the pizza, organise the picnic, take an interest in others at work. Not everybody's doing that. Look at people in the eyes. Be known as the one who cares not just about the light-hearted weekend tales, but the burden of heavy and painful Monday mornings. Love your workmates and point them to the great burden bearer, Jesus Christ. Peter writes, live such good lives among the pagans. This is what our year is about. And a legacy too, a look for impact uh, to, be, to be left behind. So it says here, number five, aim to help your company wherever you work to have an impact that is life enhancing without being soul destroying as you have an opportunity work towards that for your life and your legacy but also your language we need to take every opportunity it's given to us not easy to do graham said that a moment ago i'd love to explore that more peter writes be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have he says first in the in the third reading there first be wise in the way you act towards outsiders right making the most of every opportunity that's your life, but also let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone as you have the opportunity. You are witnessing to the hope that you have, that nobody else has. It's your hope that you have in Christ. You are witnessing to Christ in you, the hope of glory. So lastly, with communication, point number six there on page two, workplaces are webs of relationships, Relationships are possible through communication. So weave your Christian worldview into the normal communications of life. Don't hide your light under a bushel, a basket, a bowl. Put it on a stand, winsomely, naturally, joyfully. Underline those words. Let those who love their salvation continually say, great is the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we want our life... Uh, to reflect something of the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we want to leave a legacy of, of Christ-shaped values in, uh, in, in the places that we're working. But we also want to speak uh, the truth of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Help us to do that, to witness to the hope we have in him. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.